This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I'm joined, uh, I'm very happy to be joined by Heather McDonald. Uh, she is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor at City Journal, and uh, the, a New York Times bestselling author of many fine books, including um, her future New York Times bestselling books, the upcoming uh, When Race Trumps Merit, uh, How the Pursuit of Equity uh, Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Welcome, Heather. It's a pleasure to be with you, Alex. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I've followed your work for uh, for quite a few years now, and um, I have to say, I'm yeah, I'm I'm very excited to have you on. And uh, I'm um, I mean, you've you've been someone who's for now probably decades has been very uh, attentive at subjects uh, that that most people would not touch with a ten foot pole. And you've not only covered one, but you've covered multiple, pretty much. <laughs> every one of the so-called third rails and 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 now you've reached i think the the one that people are even most afraid of um the subject of race uh, meritocracy um and and kind of what this whole new obsession with uh, with equity is doing to yeah pretty much every institution in the west and and like i said it's it's offshoots um so maybe we could just start by talking about the book um i think if if i'm not mistaken one of the core concepts here that you look at and try to dissect is the the legal standard of of disparate impact and and kind of how that trickles into all of this institutional failure that we we see every day. So um, maybe you could start with that, and then uh, we'll see kind of where where we where we go. Well, right now, Alex, any institution that does not have a proportional representation above all of blacks, I think that the the sledgehammer that's being taken to Western civilization is driven overwhelmingly uh, by the race issue, although obviously the sex issue and the gender issues are are close behind. But at, at present, any institution that does not have a proportional representation of blacks, which would be 13% based on the American population, is deemed presumptively per se racist. Uh, the only allowable explanation on the part of the elites, and I include this, the, the mainstream media, corporations, academia, uh, foundations, banks, law firms, the only allowable explanation uh, for that lack of proportionality is racism. And it is every standard of meritocracy, of excellence, of achievement, or of behavior is coming down in order to fight this presumptive racism. And the way that the argument works is this concept of disparate impact. If, let's say, a police force expects a certain degree of literacy uh, to qualify for joining the force in a test, and Black applicants disproportionately fail that test, then we assume the test has a disparate impact, a disparate negative impact on blacks, and the test must be racist. This game has been played for decades in police departments, in fire departments, 
all a bunch of, of uh, black would-be policemen or firemen need to do is say, well, uh, this colorblind objective test of very, very primitive reading skills disqualifies more black than white applicants. Therefore, we must throw out the test. And that's been going on. We've been lowering standards for decades. This disparate impact idea, it began in fairly narrow legal environments, but it is now spread throughout uh, culture. And it explains basically everything in our world, uh, explains the dismantling of standards, whether the getting rid of SATs, the, the law school test, the LSATs, the medical college admission test, the MCATs are, are now in the crosshairs. Many schools have discarded MCAT requirements for black students because all of these colorblind, objective, neutral tests do have a disparate impact on blacks. The other thing that's happening in American society today is the very fast and very dangerous unwinding of the criminal justice system. And you'll get, you know, the only people talking about the, the post-George Floyd crime explosion is white conservatives on Fox News and elsewhere. And they'll, they'll rail against uh, these progressive prosecutors that are refusing to prosecute uh, shoplifting, turnstile jumping, uh, resisting arrest, other carjacking, other forms of theft, and, and even some forms of, of gun possession. And the conservative media will rail about this. And well, what's wrong with these progressive prosecutors? But they're missing the key link. Everything happening in the criminal justice system today in America that many people who believe in law and order rightly deplore is itself driven by disparate impact. Because it turns out, sadly, that every expectation of lawful behavior and every criminal law, when applied neutrally in a constitutional colorblind fashion, will have a disparate impact on blacks, not because the law is racist, because, but because blacks have such a high rate of criminal offending. And we have decided that rather than put more blacks in prison and contribute to the phantom problem of so-called mass incarceration, we would rather stop enforcing the law at all to avoid that disparate impact. Exactly. It, it does feel like it's um, it's some sort of civilizational level tests, like a, a certain, like a, a blackmail that, that we're all failing at, yep. uh, where we would do anything but to actually, you know, put our cards on the table and come to an acceptance of the fact that groups on average differ across dimensions uh, and they've they've differed for for decades, and they've differed in in kind of systematic, observable, statistically re relevant and visible ways. Which now maybe the statistics tend to to cover up a little bit uh, better, but it's you know it's it's fairly clear to the naked eye just by by living in reality and and you know encountering you know people in in real life that you know there there are these differences. And um, I mean, do you see? any of this having any form of solution without first having a way for our civilization, our culture, the, the way we perceive ourselves uh, coming to terms with the fact that these differences exist and they don't just exist across races um, or 
so-called, I don't know, genetic clusters, you know, because people that do say that race doesn't always map onto this, but, you know, there, there is some, some genetic substrate there that, that obviously it creates these patterns. Uh, they differ across sexes, they differ across, um, across multiple dimensions. So um, do you think it's, it is possible without first swallowing this pill to actually solve this problem? No. And I would just restate absolutely uh, what you, your framework of seeing this as a civilizational crisis. Basically, uh, we are being held hostage to inner city black dysfunction. Uh, rather than talk about it, we turn our eyes away from it. It is resulting in these massive uh, disparities in outcomes in, in skills, academic skills, and in uh, the likelihood of, of breaking the law or following the law. And the society at large would rather accuse itself of phantom racism. It's, it's a form of hysteria or neurosis. Uh, we go around trying to come up with these uh, sources of racism. And this preceded George Floyd. I remember, you know, we remember the Jesse Smollett hoax at, in Chicago. At that time, uh, when the media was just ex in a state of absolute ecstasy about a possibility of finally uh, confirming its narrative that MAGA, white MAGA supporters were putting blacks, and in this case, gay blacks, at, at risk of their lives. At the same time, there have been these other crusades against completely imaginary forms of racism. There was a, a line of women's shoes, uh, women's flats, that had come out of Katy Perry's fashion house that had little cutout, abstract geometric cutout faces on the top of the shoe. And the shoe came out in nine different colors, one of which was contrasting black and white. People saw blackface in that shoe. <laughs> they thought that this shoe was somehow a, a, a pertinence of Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan, anti-black stereotypes. So this line of shoes was completely taken off the market. There were Prada had like a keychain or a sweater that people thought was somehow itself racist and, and conjuring up black anti-black images, all of which is completely delusional. But, but we were in this state of hysterical self-flagellation that only got worse after George Floyd. I, I never, well, I'm a pessimist by nature, so I do believe uh, that King Lear is right, that when you think you've hit the bottom, you haven't, things can always get worse. Nevertheless, the, the degree of, of utter madness that followed the death of George Floyd with every single mainstream institution declaring itself guilty of systemic racism at the same time, of course, declaring with even greater vigor everything else in America, like, like again, the criminal law system or university admissions as also completely admired in systemic racism was just beyond belief. So yes, unless we are willing to provide an alternative explanation to disparate impact that is not racism, we will make no progress. And, and that's what, frankly, this is very tacky to mention a book, but that is in 
part of what the book is trying to do is to give the data that is, if you bring it up in polite company, uh, people cringe and they turn away. I remember years ago when I first started speaking on the, on the police and trying to rebut this narrative that there is a epidemic of racially biased police shootings of black men. And I, I gave a talk at the City University of New York's John Jay College and a very well-meaning uh, former ambassador, the quintessential wasp, tall, statuesque, uh, and a, a supporter of the Manhattan Institute came up to me afterwards and said, well, you know, that information you talked about, which was about the black crime rate, facts that make it impossible for the police to fight crime and protect black lives without having higher rates of arrests and stops of blacks. So if we're going to provide an alternative explanation to the poisonous systemic police racism, you have to talk about the facts. But this guy came up to me and said, well, you know, before you even bring up these this crime data, you really should prepare your audience because it makes people very uncomfortable. <laughs> we're more uncomfortable hearing the facts about black crime, the fact that, for instance, uh, after the George Floyd riots, black juveniles are now 100 times more likely to be killed in gun homicide than white juveniles, 100 times. Why? They're not being killed by the cops. They're not being killed by whites. They're being killed by other black juveniles who are committing gun homicide at a hundred times the rate of whites. Rather than talk about that, we would rather accuse police officers of non-existent racism. So yes, I am gonna keep putting out these facts, uh, including about the academic skills gaps uh, and, and let the chips fall where they may. Yes, and I think there was um, a part in one of your more recent articles where you kind of sadly document the fact that a lot of this stuff seems organic. I mean, wh whatever we think about, you know, the the, the voting machines in the, in the big cities and whatever ethics around and around vote counts and things like that, a lot of the people who support these policies are being voted in. They they are they have huge constituencies. People are interested in their programs. Um, or at least not as interested in the law and order uh, programs. Um, and it, it does feel like, you know, you were saying this before, I mean, there's there's a lot of ruin in a nation and it feels like there's there's still a lot of ruin left. I mean, um, kind of this, all of these flavors of uh, pandering to different ethno-narcissism seems to be great politics. I mean, it, it, it makes for great messaging. Um, it, you know, people, I mean, it's it's not like these candidates are saying that, these problems will remain unaddressed, but they they essentially give solutions that have never worked. You know, kind of these social scientist type approaches where it's all about, uh, you know, giving the homeless shelter and giving, I don't know, social services to to X group that, you know, is, is shooting up on the street. But um, the reality is the, the uptake in, this, in these programs and the interest in them and the, especially the, the results for them are, are abysmal. So... Um, it really, it, it feels like um, people are just not learning the lesson here. There is an absolute aversion to the idea of personal responsibility. I was at a, a party recently and, and um, presented a thought experiment that I've talk, written about 
which is again to bring it back to the race issue but you're right to broaden it out into other into you know street disorder and and uh vagrancy policies but i've said with regards to the explanation that systemic racism explains the very real racial disparities in income household wealth uh you know attainment at the very highest levels of professions that are still remotely meritocratic now but that's all coming down whether it's in the judiciary or science labs or law school faculties but that if if blacks acted like asians for 10 or 15 years with regards to all things related to academic success that is a fanatical attention to homework to studying parents involved in their schools, in their children's education, making sure that they were showing up to school uh, and, and were studying and students were taking their textbooks home uh, and, and actually paying attention in class. And we still saw racial disparities. Then it, it would be, and, and so in other words, we've, we've removed the behavior gaps, but we still saw racial disparities. Then it would be time, arguably, to look at the systemic racism explanation. But until that happens, when you still have these large behavioral disparities that are within the the capacity of families to overcome, it's way premature to say systemic racism is the only allowable explanation. So I I presented this as not exactly cocktail party talk, I realize, but this, this female I was talking to who was a social worker, she flipped out. Uh, she, she was she was waving her hands and saying, no, 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 you may not do that. You may not impose any personal agency on blacks. You can't because somehow because of slavery and discrimination and, and there, I would say that even worse than slavery in America's history was the daily petty gratuitous cruelty and and contempt and and just condescension that Americans continued to mete out to blacks subsequent to the eradication of slavery that breaks my heart it is it is tragic to see that blacks were for very many decades making an effort to conform to bourgeois values and whites continued beating them back so that is true but right now, that is not our reality. And these questions of culture are within their capacity, but it is completely taboo to talk about them. And, and I would just say again, like I, I recognize that there is a value of racial etiquette and that instinct that this former ambassador showed, which is to turn one's eyes away. And, and most whites really would prefer not to talk about the problems of blacks and sweep it under the rug. That is an understandable and arguably even legitimate reaction for social harmony. But at this point, if we are going to indict our fundamental institutions of Western civilization, whether it's classical music, art, philosophy, uh, science, as racist, then the time for racial etiquette is over because the left does not hesitate to wield the racism charge promiscuously and without any factual basis. So 
I am very well aware that these are difficult topics and, and ones that these well-meaning white Americans would rather not address, but it, it has to be done. And, and if I could just also, you're right about like when are voters going to throw the bums out that are bringing us this disorder? The issue of personal responsibility applies as well to street vagrants. Uh, and oh, yes, the solution is going to be more social services. Listen, people are on the streets because it is a lifestyle choice. They're given options on a daily basis by outreach workers. Here's some shelter. Would you please come with me? You'll get showers. You'll get clothes. You'll get free food. And people don't come because they would rather maintain their lifestyle of drug use. And and they have, you know, in many cities, there's pizzas delivered to their box, to their to their uh, little encampment. There many advocates give them free tents so that they can expand their encampment shanties uh, because the advocates, so-called advocates, and I've, I've asked before, like, how do we get to be an advocate? <laughs> you put up your hand and say, I'm an advocate for the homeless. And I believe that they're best helped by being kept on the streets uh, where they can shoot up endlessly or, or take fentanyl. The reason the advocates claim that their advocacy means keeping the homeless, the vagrants on the street is because they become for the advocates a visible symbol of the failure and heartlessness and cruelty of capitalism. That's why they're on the streets, not because we don't know how to solve this problem. You solve the problem by enforcement. You say, sorry, you don't get to colonize public space. You're out of here. Here's your services, your shelter. If you don't take it, I'm going to move you along and you can find someplace else to go. It is very easily solved. Yes, I think this ties into kind of the the larger problem of of what do NGOs contribute to this? I mean, number one, what is what is the legitimacy, like you said, of these these advocacy yeah. with individual ones, and two, what is the role of NGOs? Because NGOs seem to be having quite uh, quite the leverage in in politics across the West and across the East as well, in Eastern Europe as well. I mean, as you could see from Ukraine here in Romania as well, all, all sorts of open society type uh, organizations, uh, you know, doing doing heavy lifting for uh, for local parties, you know, organizing and things like that. I mean, um, you know, democracy has its issues. I'm definitely not, you know, maybe one of its, its main proponents, but uh, the fact that NGOs, especially American NGOs, and a lot of them essentially paid by the state in many ways, have their fingers in, in, in all of these pies globally. And especially uh, with, with regards to even to elections. I mean, George Soros is, you know, I mean, not to sound conspiratorial, but he's definitely someone who is def- very involved in supporting many of these candidates uh, who um, are are light on enforcement uh, for many of these laws. So I wonder what you make of, of all of this. Well, yes, you know, this is in the United States. I, 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 I don't know if he's gotten involved in this uh, in Europe, but in the United States, these left-wing prosecutors that are not enforcing the law for the sole reason of avoiding disparate impact. If, if, if there wasn't a higher black crime rate, if blacks were not 33% of the prison population in the United States, even though they're 13% of the population, nobody would care about incarceration. The attitude would be lock them up and throw away the key. Uh, but because of disparate impact, that is why we are unwinding the criminal justice system. And Soros has funded uh, many of these 
left-wing prosecutors, whether it's George Gascon or Alvin Bragg or or Kim Fox in, in Chicago. Um, it's a, it, you know, as far as the NGOs more broadly, it's a, it's a, a complicated and, and sad topic because as much as these days I'm, I, my instinct is to be somewhat of a skeptic with regards to the triumphalist American narrative about this nation of freedom and liberty and rugged individualism from its onset because of, I think, you, you sort of need to always have a footnote. Yeah, but what about Blacks? There, it is true that the American spirit of self-reliance and, and creating non-governmental organizations that de Tocqueville observed in the 19th century is really remarkable. American philanthropy, you know, you go to the Uffizi galleries in, in Florence and they've got these Lucite plaques on the wall thanking their donors for allowing them to renovate the galleries. And it's practically uniquely Americans. Uh, Americans support British universities, Oxbridge. We do have this remarkable tradition of both philanthropy and self-help through the so-called civil society organizations. So that's a good thing. You know, it, it's, it means that you're not relying on the government. And there's a, a, a narrative that comes out of the Claremont Institute. Charles Kessler was very involved and a, a guy that I'm not in contact with anymore that is against pro- the American progressive movement as the moment be- before the New Deal, but culminating in the New Deal when it was assumed that all of the volunteerism would be transferred to government and we got ever expanded government programs to take care of socialization, try to alleviate poverty. And so now the NGOs, as you say, are are very often government supported. Uh, A colleague of mine at the Manhattan Institute and City Journal, Steve Malanga, wrote an article in the early 90s about the New York City's uh, sort of landscape in poor minority neighborhoods where basically the only institutions out there are these social service public interest uh, agencies that are purporting to do social uplift and it's all government funded. And I, I did some research when I was writing a lot on welfare reform, which now is a topic that absolutely bores me to tears (laughs) because I'm not at heart a policy wonk. And so I don't believe that if you tweak the child tax credit, you're going to revive marriage or something like that. But I would go out to these agencies that were going to be, you know, helping uh, single mothers become, I don't know what, because we don't want them to be married if you're a left-wing social service agency. I guess you just want them to have more government funding. And they're totally incompetent. Uh, These are run by people that are basically one baby step away from their own clients. That's a different matter than these elite NGOs that show up at Davos. Um, But in the case of anti-poverty work in the United States, uh, it's a joke. They, they're, they're assiduously, if not value neutral, pro anti-bourgeois values. I would ask them, you know, well, what about marriage as a solution to poverty, which is in fact the best thing you can do to avoid 
being poor in America. I mean, American poverty is about one thing, family breakdown, end of story. It is a phenomenon of, of single mothers that have multiple children out of wedlock, often by different fathers. But you'd ask these, these social service groups, what do you promote marriage? Oh no, we would never do that. You know, that would be racist or something or sexist. So the NGO, we've got, we've got many different NGO problems. The one you guys are seeing in Europe is uh, a sort of a more elite highfalutin one, but, but it is the question like, who chooses these people? They don't have to pass any kind of voting test or anything. They just set up the shingle and there they go. Exactly. Yes. I mean, uh, you make a really good point about NGOs. I mean, I, I wish we had those kind of um, um, civil society organizations that, that the U.S. Is, uh, is, is famous for. And I hope U.S. still keeps having them because uh, apparently uh, they're, they're relatively in danger. And I mean, this kind of like mutual aid societies and kind of like smaller scale things like... Uh, um, and, and I think um, there's... Um, you know the, the the problem in Eastern Europe has always been kind of the the, the underlying current of, of low trust, but I feel like that's slowly um, subsiding here as well. I mean, we're 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 on our way, but the problem is that in the meantime, uh, the the actual patterns for for NGOs are uh, all of these imports. Like the, the biggest companies in Romania are multinationals. The biggest NGOs in Romania are multinational, um, and they're kind of setting setting the tone for what exactly it means to be doing voluntary work or charitable work. And it's all it's all for the for the great gods of diversity, inclusion, and whatever right. uh, Brussels wants us to think about. Um, but you also had a, a a great point. I think this is something that people don't talk about. That much because yes, it, it is it it carries judgment. Like you, you're talking about bourgeois values and the value. I mean, um, Thomas Sowell is is kind of famous for for describing how it used to be to to grow up in in Harlem and I don't know sleep on on his balcony and you know without the the threat of uh, being being attacked or shot or, or things like that. Um, and the the fact that bourgeois values, I mean, even if they were not as prevalent uh, in the black community as they were in the, in the white community, they were still pretty, pretty prevalent. I mean, people, people looked up to the, um, the kind of the, the mainstream culture and were aspiring to be a certain way. And I feel like maybe this is kind of the, 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 the dark part that without that pressure, we're lifting the pressure uh, of maybe, you know, maybe too much enforcement sometimes because that did happen. Um, and um, also lifting the pressure of actually having to look up to mainstream culture, uh, because now I feel like kind of the value systems has inverted, like m most of the interesting, creative and, um, and noteworthy people in the US either are Black or have um, some sort of affinity to either Black music or um, in the movies. I mean, things are kind of converging towards... Uh, you know, this this is the, the lifeblood of American culture. And you can see this even here. I mean, you know, teenagers here also listen to rap or, you know, whatever whatever uh, American music with kind of a, a black backbeat uh, is, is coming out now. So um, I think these two forces where you have a lack of, um, of enforcement of, of bourgeois values, which one of them is the law. And then you also have a lack of status for these bourgeois values, which is essentially... Uh, it kind of left no pressure on on certain communities and and they drifted into maybe a 
I don't know, a more ancestral pattern. <laughs> Make of, of that what you wish. That's absolutely true. Uh, now we have oppositional culture, uh, and you could see that coming from a long time uh, within academia with the instinct towards critique, towards deconstruction, what I, as Paul Ricoeur calls the hermeneutics of suspicion. Uh, but within the Black community, the oppositional culture is particularly pernicious. I mean, it is, it is a tragic thing that today's civil rights heroes are almost all thugs, whether it's George Floyd or Michael Brown, who's still venerated as a civil rights martyr, uh, even though the Obama Justice Department itself disproved the hands up, don't shoot lie that was perpetrated by uh, his buddies. This is the guy that was shot in August 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, by Officer Darren Wilson uh, that set off the first round of what I've termed the Ferguson effect of the combined phenomenon of depolicing and, and the emboldening of criminals. Um, but that George Floyd is, is like having squares named after him or monuments erected in his name. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's a travesty when you think of the self-discipline and heroism and real courage that was shown by the early civil rights nonviolent uh, activists who believed absolutely in turning the other cheek and obeying the law, I, I, things have really uh, gone very bad. And you're absolutely right that through the 50s, there were mainstream Black institutions within those communities that put themselves in the role of promoting the values that lead to success. Respectability politics is now something seen as a term of opprobrium. It should be something that should be celebrated. The black newspapers would give tips on, you know, how to dress or would celebrate uh, cotillions and, and black sororities and fraternities. There's a very interesting book that I reviewed years ago by a uh, sociologist and editor, Alan Ehrenholt, called The Lost City. And it looks at, a, at four or so different ethnic communities in Chicago in the 1950s. And he says the difference in the 1950s but from then and today uh, is basically attitudes towards authority. You did not have this knee-jerk belief that any authority is per se illegitimate. And he talks about uh, a white ethnic Catholic uh, neighborhood in Chicago and a suburban white neighborhood and the growing suburbs outside of Chicago. But he talks about Bronzeville, which was the black community. And they had these voluntary associations of, of mutual aid, insurance groups, uh, and, and groups that were trying to make sure that this was a society that was going to conform and that basically it's the talented 10th that Du Bois talked about. Now you're absolutely right that black levels of dysfunction, of crime, of drug use, of petty theft, juvenile delinquency, and out of wedlock birth rate has always been higher, but it was quite, quite different. And, and when the sixties came, you know, I have one theory for what happened to that embrace of bourgeois values and why was it replaced with oppositional culture that celebrated uh, crime and dysfunction 
may be the loss of segregation and the expectation of integration. And so to extent, some extent, maybe it was rationalizing the real, I don't know. But I have to say, it breaks my heart when I see pictures of Black college students or Black performers, whether it's Ella Fitzgerald or Nate King, Nat King Cole, uh, Louis Armstrong, dressed to the nines, you know, saying we are going to be part of, of America, we're going to play by the rules, and through the 1950s into the 1960s, white Americans kept beating them back and saying, sorry, uh, you're not welcome here. And it was like we're two ships passing in the night. Uh, we kept them out. Now, <laughs> Amer white Americans are open arms. There's nothing that they want more than to be transracial. They are not discriminating against blacks. They are making excuses for blacks. We're ready. And after way belatedly, way belatedly, after this appalling centuries long white supremacy, but now you have blacks that are, you know, in the inner city, they're saying to hell with this. Uh, we're going to celebrate misogyny. We're going to celebrate multi-partner fertility, as they discreetly call it in sociology. Uh, we're going to celebrate gang banging, dropping out of school, not studying. We're going to view effort as an, as acting white. So it's it's a it's a tragic kind of crossover of two paths that is going to take some kind of, I think correction from within the black community to overcome. Yes. It's, um, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a complicated, <laughs> it's a complicated knot of, 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 of so many issues. And I think the, the historical weight of it all makes it even more complex to unti untie. Right. Um, yeah, I think there's, um, there's also the, uh, the, the element of, um, of, kind of the cost to everyone else, which a lot of these policies seem to miss um, because, I mean, especially recidivism and the fact that, you know, the, the uh, legal system doesn't seem to account for that. The fact that, you know, recidivism essentially means that the same person that you've had in your courtroom has gone out and done something similar, often much worse, and then they go back in and they go out and then there's obviously a misunderstanding of the psychology of a person like this. I mean, after the second or third time, you could always obviously see that this is someone who's um, not phased by being sent to prison for a short time. This is not someone who's, you know, the, the prison system obviously has not corrected, um, I don't know, the, 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 the moral issue within his soul and uh, it's, it's not doing uh, what it should. And every time he, he goes out, because usually he... Um, he inflicts costs, misery, uh, destruction, uh, you know, financial disaster on members mostly of his own community. Um, and these costs seem to not appear in any tally. I mean, it's always about the interests and future and, uh, and life of the, of the criminal. Absolutely. I they have absolutely stated what I, I, I sort of, realized here's the issue is that this is not you would not foresee this the activists prefer 
they prioritize black criminals over black victims. That you wouldn't have foreseen that. That's not something that is, you know, by definition essential. You could just as easily. So this is why, like conservatives like me, go around scratching our heads saying, "Wait, wait, wait, wait we, we, we thought Black Lives Mattered, and yet the only people talking about Black crime are white conservatives. The the Black death rate is just astronomical." I've talked about a hundred times greater for juveniles, a hundred times greater chance of getting killed in gun homicide. If you're black between the ages of 10 and 24, uh, blacks have 25 times the rate of whites as, as uh, dying, blacks have uh, dying of gun homicide as whites. Why doesn't anybody care about these, these black children, these heartbreaking girls, toddlers, that are shot in the head, that are brain dead or dead, actually dead for the rest of their lives in these barbaric drive-by shootings. And the activists would rather get the criminal out of jail. It is totally bizarre. Now, as far as the recidivism goes and, and not cracking down, there's two things going on there. One is just sheer need for triage. Violent crime in the United States is so high. You guys in Europe, you have no conception. And whether it's an American anti-incarceration advocate or a European one that says, well, you know, Germany's, you have a, a 22 higher times rate per capita rate of, of uh, incarceration as Germany and like what it is compared to Japan. Guess what, guys? You guys do not have this violent street crime that we do, that is what explains American incarceration rates. I think Japan has maybe 10 homicides a year in the entire country of 130 million. Uh, America has uh, way over close to, to 20,000. Uh, every single day, dozens of blacks are killed in homicide every single day. And nobody talks about it. But so we're overwhelmed. So you have a lot of big city prosecutors that are basically saying, you have to do something really serious for me to take any interest in you. Uh, it turns out that only 3% of people who commit crime actually end up in prison. Uh, most of them, if they're caught at all, are given probation or parole. Probation, which means we'll keep you in the community and pretend to monitor you, which doesn't happen. Um, but but the other reason now is the disparate impact one. So you've got both an overwhelmed system and one that has decided that it's systemically racist. But in fact, Alex, the issue is not really length of sentence, although at some point it does come in. But, but what also matters, there's a movement that is sort of, I haven't noticed it in a long time, but I used to, I wrote about it maybe six years ago called, I think, Swift, Certain and Fair. And it, it, it builds on the ideas of criminal justice reformers like Beccaria in Italy, which is that what matters to the criminal mindset is the swiftness and certainty of punishment, not necessarily its length. So that you got to catch somebody immediately and rather than have a trial a year away, which is what happens in our overwhelmed criminal justice systems, uh, within there are our, our constitutional speedy trial requirements, but still 
there's not, you know, you, you don't have the certainty that you will be punished. And so imposing a 25 year sentence, if that only happens once every a hundred times that somebody is caught, that's not going to really matter. So that being able to do things swiftly and certainly depends to a large extent on the functioning of the criminal justice system. And, and right now, our police departments in the United States, thanks to the anti-police rhetoric that reached deafening levels of, of volume after the George Floyd race riots, they're down by a third in terms of manpower because cr- recruiting is over. Nobody wants to join a, a profession where you're a racist from day one. And the flight from the profession through retirements and and people just leaving before retirement is massive. And so you don't have the manpower necessary to make the arrest and the courts are overwhelmed. Um, so that that's a large part of the problem. But yes, we should we should put the focus of public policy on people who obey the law, not those who break it. And now it's just reversed. It's I call it the great inversion or the great abdication. The focus of public policy today is on the dysfunctional, the criminal, uh, those who are, are outside the social order, and everybody else who's just trying to raise kids in a decent environment. They don't get the attention of policymakers. It's it's a very perverse inversion. Yes, I mean it's uh, it's a concept that rhymes with uh, with Sam Francis' idea of, of anarcho tyranny. I mean the. Uh, the police doesn't really care what happened to the law abiding. I mean, they're 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 more concerned with kind of um, not not harming the criminal and making sure that the the oppressive mainstream does not interfere with the with the life of uh, of uh, of the of the underclass. Yep, weird. It is really weird. Yes, I think you've. Um, um, I mean, you, you've you've praised uh, Rudy Giuliani in the past, and I think you know this the, the whole um, idea of, of broken windows policing, of kind of preventative policing, of uh, stop and frisk, and things like that. Do you think there's number one? Th- are these policies effective? Were they as effective as as some people on our side think? And and two, is there any chance that anyone anywhere, maybe Florida, <laughs> would 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 start uh, would start doing them again? They're both effective and morally justified. Even, you know, the the strong theory of of broken windows policing and broken windows policing is paying attention to so-called low-level misdemeanor crimes like littering or urinating in public, turnstile jumping, you know, fair beating, uh, graffiti, drug, drug sales, drug use, uh, loitering, disorderly conduct, illegal gambling, prostitution, these are all viewed as non-serious crimes. Uh, I would say when you're living with such crimes in your neighborhood, they are not non-serious. But the strong theory of broken windows policing, which grew out of a famous article in 1982 in Atlantic Magazine, co-authored by James Q. Wilson, a late social conservative, one of the few conservative social scientists, and George Kelling, also late, who is a Manhattan Institute fellow uh, and a criminologist at at Rutgers, um, was that if you pay attention to the small issues, if 
things will get better. And if you ignore low-level street disorder, like broken windows, if, if there's a building, abandoned building, and all the windows are broken out by teenage uh, thugs, and you let that building stand there, the disorder will spread because people see that there's nobody in control. There's no informal social controls in that neighborhood. And so they'll, you'll be more likely to uh, litter or do graffiti or, or steal. There's been some nice uh, empirical uh, experiments testing this out of, out of Holland and Amsterdam that uh, put like a, a, a bike that was broken or stolen in a neighborhood and watched what happened and people were much more likely to engage in other types of crime. So the strong theory is you allow this disorder to spread, it'll bring more crime. And if you take care of it, uh, you take care of higher levels of crime. And I do believe that that works for two reasons. One, when you're arresting or just merely intervening with people like drinking in public, you don't have to make an arrest, but if a cop goes up and says, look at, you know, you're not allowed to be drinking out of your, your brown paper bag here and pours out the, the scotch or the whiskey without making an arrest, that's enough to say, we're aware that you're engaged in this illegal behavior. Don't do it. Um, that, that you, in, in enforcing those laws, you often come across people with outstanding warrants. With Rudolph Giuliani, you, you mentioned him, the mayor of New York City in 1994, who began the great revitalization economic renaissance of, of New York through policing. Uh, they found when they were finally making arrests for turnstile jumping, which is one of the most awful crimes that just give you a sense of, boy, I'm, I don't want to go into this subway because there's criminals down there. They found when they would make arrests for turnstile jumping that they were finding occasionally a people with murder warrants out for them or, or rape warrants. So it works that way. Um, but and it works by discouraging further crime. But the other thing is, is even without that strong theory of broken windows and the great chain of criminal offending, which means that if you're a, a robber, if you're one who uses guns in drive-by shootings, you're not scrupulous about obeying lower level laws. You know, you're not, oh dear, I better not litter, but I'm gonna go out and and, and spray bullets across the sidewalk in the hope of killing my gang rebel. And I don't care if I shoot a three-year-old girl in the head. Uh, you're not going to do that. And at the same time, be very neat about litter. So it, you know, that does work. There's a great chain of criminal offending, but the reason it's a moral necessity, I've spent time in inner city neighborhoods going to police community uh, meetings and the good law abiding people who take the time out of their once a month to show up to these meetings and beg for more police protection. It's what they want. They complain about the, the kids that are hanging out by the hundreds on the street corners fighting or that are truant from school or the, the drug sets in their neighborhood or smelling marijuana in their hallway. They want that broken windows policing. And if the police listen to the advocates who say, oh, well, misdemeanor enforcement, low-level enforcement is racist, uh, they will be 
denying, the police will be denying those law-abiding people the public order that they deserve and that they beg for. Yes, it seems like this would simply be the enforcement of, of bourgeois values in terms of, of street conduct. I mean, we just right. don't do gambling on the corner. We just don't right. do drinking in public. Um, yeah, and the, and the fact that it's broken down everywhere. I mean, the fact that you don't enforce petty street crime, the fact that, you know, you don't... It, it's it's also the, the, the loss in status of a lot of this. And that kind of is, is also tied into the, the epidemic of fatherlessness and... You know, once once you devalue the, the the very thing that made your civilization great, and that a lot of people aspire to. I mean, that's that's what a lot of people in the West don't realize that um, even even people you know coming from the East, like like myself, uh, we aspire to these values. And when they disappear, a lot of the respect also fades. Like I know I know a lot of people who who live in in places like London in the UK or in Western Europe who do different works. I mean, some people work at, at fancy banks, some people are, are Uber drivers, um, but the, the kind of the underlying current now, and it didn't used to be like that maybe 10 years ago, is that they're there for money. They're not there necessarily to participate in a society. They're there to, to get their money. They're also, a lot of them are convinced about the, the racism um, narratives that they keep hearing that you know people are racist against them, which they weren't 10 years ago when people were arguably more racist against them because they were new and exotic and things like that. So the fact that the, the, the West has willingly shed its status uh, is not a good thing for even for the people who, who, you know, would like to be immigrants to come to the West and, and maybe contribute because they don't feel like contributing. They feel like taking. They feel like you've exposed your, your uh, soft underbelly uh, and uh, it's, it's there for the taking. It's, it really, it's a strange psychological reversal. Uh, for, for a lot of people who actually would have wanted to participate and contribute, um, the fact that, you know, there is this undercurrent of self-hatred in the West is very bad. It's not doing anyone any favors and it's not making the experience, even of the immigrants that you so so kindly welcome, any better. Um, it's, it's, it's really sad. Yeah, I was up at, in the Boston, MIT, Cambridge area this week and um, I, I was on one, the, the, a green line going out to the Museum of Fine Arts, one of their sub-trolley lines. And on it was this group of just utterly appalling white girls that I, I wasn't quite sure of their sex. I mean, they were so, and it, it was a very punk look with overtones of the trans look, but, you know, with sort of shaved sideburns and the red pink hair and pierced all over um, that were the absolute antithesis of any kind of female modesty or, or sense of wanting to aspire to not, not beauty in, in a kind of overly uh, mindless feminine way necessarily, but just ugly grunge. And then on the subway was an, an Asian girl reading. I thought, oh, how nice. She's reading a book, you know, looking absolutely well put together. Well, I, I moved later to look at what, see what she was reading. And it was it was James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room, which is a testament to his homosexuality. So she's undoubtedly like a Harvard student or something. But um, it was amazing the Asians that you would see around Harvard Square that are on this Ivy League tourism with their young children, like 14-year-olds or something, or 12 years old. You could see them. 
They don't speak in English, but they're taking their kids here to say, you will go to Harvard. And, and so Asians are the one immigrant group that are still hewing uh, extraordinarily fanatically to the success sequence and the bourgeois values where everything else is is collapsing around them. And, and if they ever decide that the American university is not any longer the, the essential path to what they aspire to, we're in trouble. You know, our, our graduate STEM departments here are over 50% foreign because our math skills are so low, we can't fill them. Classical music is kept alive because of Chinese and Asian involvement. Uh, American parents, even Jewish parents, I don't think any longer are believe that learning an instrument is a is a necessary natural accoutrement to being civilized. So yeah, we are not we have lost confidence in our values. It's very, very curious. And again, I, I think a lot of it is because of a belated reckoning with race and white civilization generally is extraordinarily uh, self-critical. The rest of the world, as I'm often reminded by conservatives who are trying to pull me back from my maybe overreaction to uh, America's race history, will point out that the rest of the world was worse when it comes to mistreatment of the other and still is, uh, and nobody is apologizing. I don't, I've never heard any apologies come out of an African government about its participation in slave trading long before the Portuguese uh, or the Spanish or the Dutch arrived there, long before ongoing enslavement in, in Africa, mostly Arab to African, but no apologies for tribal genocide in Africa uh, and other cultures that have been completely contemptuous of strangers, whether it's China, Japan, uh, India, and, and within their own caste, abysmal treatment. Nobody's racked by guilt. The West is, and whether this be, is because the whole philosophy of self-critique, the Enlightenment philosophy is Western. Uh, whether that makes us particularly prey to this, I don't know, but, but it's not justified. It is not, you know, science, science editors, heads of federal science agencies, heads of academic STEM departments are going around at every opportunity saying that science and medicine are racist. It's truly sick. I mean, it is a form, as I said earlier, of of like some kind of weird psychosis or neurosis. Yes, there was um, uh, interestingly a, a, a recent um, kind of statistical study uh, floating around um, about the fact that apparently uh, a, a lot of the kind of the, the buzzwords that we now associate with wokeness um, had early adopters, not in the U.S., but in countries like Sweden uh, or um, which one was the other country? Um, but yeah, Canada, of course. And, yeah, uh, of course. It, <laughs> of course. Yes. And I think a, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, this this puts into question a lot of the theories about wokeness. But the reality is that we a lot of people have just been marinating in in the narratives about civil rights especially 
um, coming through American media, through pumped hot through every channel. Every movie has pretty much the same pattern of you know the the oppressed underdog with the oppressive overdog, kind of this terrifying father figure, you know, and then maybe in the end they, they, um, you know, the father sees that actually it's really good for his son to be dancing, to be gay, to be a woman, to be whatever, whatever variant you, you, you're watching at the time. Um, and it's, you know, the, the fact that, you know, it happened to people in Sweden happened to be uh, a bit more eager to, to talk about this stuff earlier, um, doesn't necessarily negate the fact that, you know, this is, all of media is American. Um, all of um, all of the narratives are American, and pretty much all of the American narratives have some form of moral valence tied either to civil rights or maybe if you look a bit earlier to the the victory in the, in the Second World War and what kind of the the the, the moral uh, conflict was there. So um, yeah, it's it's a, a, a strange thing to be kind of uh, in um, downstream from 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 these like you know, a century's worth of, of narratives now. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't don't perceive these narratives anymore. They just seem like like normality. I feel like that fuels a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, it, it's common sense. It's common sense to root for the underdog. It's common sense to see, um, you know, criminality as a result of poverty and social dysfunction. And obviously, if you if you think that about criminals and about the destitute and, you know, the homeless, the unhoused, um, you obviously think that uh, social services is the only uh, mature way to to deal with this, and uh, and this reminds me of a of, of something that happened in in the nineties, and it was it was an an outrage across all of Western Europe because uh, that was when Romania was kind of getting getting its uh, its its collective um, things together, and we're uh, we had a very bad feral dog problem, so. We had lots of packs of dogs were maiming children, you know, they're just making the streets unsafe, you know, burrowing through garbage. And we had a, a very forceful uh, president at the time. And it was, you know, Brigitte Bardot had to come to Romania to cry about the, about the dogs because he was, he said, you know, he was, he was planning essentially a pogrom of, of the dogs. We, we would get rid of the dogs. Um, and, and in the, in the end we did, but it was such a kind of a, a contrast between fact that in Romania, it was pretty clear what needed to be done. Uh, you needed like a task force to, to descend on the dogs and to, you know, process them in some ways. Uh, but the, the, the outcry and the, and the force that the, the Western NGOs put up to say, no, 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 you need to be, you know, <laughs> not, not doing this the, the only way possible. I mean, these were probably millions of dogs. It, 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 every street had its own little pack of, of nightmares. So, um, the problem had been dealt with, but um, the the worldview that was even then coming in from the West, the fact that, you know, just it's much better to not do anything than to actually solve your problems. If, if the problem, if the problem solving is, uh, is unpleasant um, was, was very, um, was very telling and it kind of set, set the tone for a lot of stuff that happens afterwards. So you're saying the Dog Lives Matter movement was responsible for our Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I mean, no. there, is, there is this uh, veneration of the underdog, and it is the antithesis of classical values of the Greeks and Romans, where uh, you, you, you honored and aspired to, to the, be the hero, to be the conqueror, uh, and... Western cultures, like all cultures, have been warrior cultures. 
uh, too much so for me. Like I frankly have a hard time reading. I, I couldn't get through the Iliad. It's just, it's too much war. I'm a, in, in that thing alone, maybe I'm a typical girl. Um, but, but the sense of we, we aspire to strength and, and success is just the opposite now. Now, you know, Nietzsche said that that was Christianity that venerates the victim. And, and he, he rued the fact that we've moved away from those classical values. Um, but definitely now, you know, we, we always feel like it's the so-called underdog that is, and we, we portray the underdog as always a helpless victim of external forces stripped of any personal agency uh, and would rather blame ourselves for any disparities in, in life circumstances and don't believe in enforcing norms and having high expectations for people. We're now in the business of always making excuses um, and, and also obviously the sort of normalcy that you mentioned of two biological two-parent married families uh, those things are now seen as oppressive. Uh, the, the speed with which the anti-establishment establishes itself as the norm and as the default is really astounding. And it puts, obviously, most, most uh, stunningly with regards to trans claims that immediately put anybody who is defending notions that were absolutely standard through all of human history and are still standard in most of the world on the defensive about trying to say that, well, biological mothers and fathers should be the norm. You have to justify that, or you have to justify saying that uh, biological males should not play against biological females. Those who would defend what was completely taken for granted are now seen as, as like, how dare you say that? It, it, the, the left manages to, to dominate every cultural field with an increasingly preposterous set of claims that they manage to repackage as what should be the default values of our society. I'm, I'm skeptical that Sweden or even Canada was that much before us, you know, I've not, I don't know the study you saw. Um, it it may be just one study that finds a few ideas like this because we had, I can't remember now if it was the 1960s or 1970s, uh, a very important book that was about blaming the victim, was the title blaming the victim that in order, if you were to hold uh, inner city residents uh, to any kind of, expectation of self-control or not getting involved in gangs, you were blaming the victim. And so any kind of uh, respectability politics were completely discredited. I, I kind of doubt whether Sweden or Canada had the social conditions that would have given rise to that when, again, America all of a sudden notices, you know, the Southern whites are acting like absolute madmen. I mean, they are, they are these, these people that are spitting on children and beating them 
what the hell is going on? I doubt whether, and that produced this great flight from single standards of behavior. I doubt whether any place else in the West had anything comparable to that. Uh, they don't have our history, but but maybe so. In any case, right now, it, it is the case that other places in the Anglosphere are doing a very good job of sometimes pioneering new ways for whites to be guilty. Yes, I think it's, uh, it is it is interesting how, um, especially the internet and, and also I think the, the, maybe the universities before the internet, because pretty much all of the, the sociology and, and anthropology and, uh, you know, even, even political sciences, economics that people study in foreign universities has its origins somehow in the U.S. I mean, most of the studies are, from the, most of the books written are from, from U.S., uh, U.S. authors. Um, so I think, you know, the, the patterns were set there as well. Um, and there is some phenomenon where, um, because the U.S. kind of sets the, 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 the status pattern for global elites, some people are more eager to, to prove their, uh, their fealty to, to the global elite creed um, by uh, being, I don't know, more Catholic than the Pope and, you know, being, uh, you know, because these concepts, I, I don't know, heteronormativity and things like that existed in the water and academia and on um, platforms like Tumblr, even before the so-called Great Awakening, which people placed at around 2011. Um, and it just seemed like social media was a, was a huge accelerant for it. And the places I think that were primed already, I mean, Canada, pretty much the, the state religion of Canada is to be more... Uh, more enlightened on, on civil rights than the U.S., even though they don't have the same demographic makeup, the same history, anything like that. Uh, and Sweden, I mean, Sweden is, you know, relatively left to utopia. You know, people are already kind of primed to, to think about that. And it's very easy. And I can say that as someone who's lived, you know, pretty much in a, in a majority white country, it's very easy to be anti-racist when you have absolutely no interaction with people of other races. You know, it's, it's in theory, it's, it's, it's absolutely logical and nice and, and great to, uh, to be anti-racist. Pretty much everyone I know in Romania is anti-racist. Um, you know, exposure to, to other cultures, other races makes you question some things. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. So, um, it's, it's, you can escalate things quite significantly from, from afar, um, if you're, if you uh, follow the same school of thought and everyone follows the same school. I mean, I, I studied in, in uh, Austria. I mean, what did we, what did we learn? You know, Keynes, Krugman, uh, Stiglitz, and this is, you know, I studied economics obviously, and this is pretty much American stuff. Um, so yeah, I think this, this is a language of the world. This is a knowledge of the world. And the fact that, yeah. I don't know, Swedish academics were a little bit more uh, trigger happy when, when the internet came on. I don't think it doesn't prove that the uh, U.S. is not the center of this. Yeah, I know that the consensus opinion is that this is all internet-based and social media and whatnot. I don't know. I, I Frankly, I guess I shouldn't, I don't have the qualifications to weigh in because I don't really do much social media. But I can just say that these academic trends were there since the 80s, at least, with the multiculturalism and the hatred of Western civilization. So uh, none of these ideas are at all new t- since the internet era. Um, okay, and, I think the, uh, the argument is more that it's just an, an accelerant. Accelerant, right. Yeah, there's there's something about the, the, the polarization and the fact that it was pretty f- uh, early on that the camp split into two two sections. 
And then that the fact that, you know, you had to distance yourself from the politics of the other camp and it was always kind of one outrage anecdote against the other and one influencer against the other made the two uh, ends kind of escalate in in opposition to each other. Because I do feel like, for example, the, the trans phenomenon has reached kind of a fever pitch extremely fast. And it does seem like it's it's kind of a tit for tat escalation between the people who say, okay, you know, maybe I would not send my child to, uh, I don't know, a striptease by a drag woman. When then the people on the other side say, oh, actually, I am so enlightened that I'll sign them up for tomorrow, you know, drag queen story hour. And it just feels like this is all absurd, but to create that uh, distance and opposition to the the hated other, you have to kind of up the ante and become even more insane. Well, I'm, I am constantly asking myself, what am I missing about my own point of view? And I think... You know, I, I I try to push back on conservatives who have this Manichaean worldview that the, it is the left has certain essential traits that are uh, abstract and and not dependent on any particular issue. So that you know the left uses double standards or doesn't look at evidence, blah blah. blah. And my view is they say the same thing about us. So uh, let's not assume that these cognitive shortcuts and epistemological blind spots are uniquely possessed by the other side. That having been said, your view that, well, both sides are going to the extremes. I don't believe that. I mean, I will say that I think they're the ones that are taking the culture just in completely bizarre ways. And it is not symmetrical. Uh, the conservatives are trying to hold on to something that is being destroyed with just acid at an incredible rate. And so I don't think it's, it's symmetrical or at all comparable for a parent to say, I'm not going to take my child to some event whose whole purpose is to rub this child's nose into premature knowledge of sexuality. Uh, I'm, I'm actually all for drag. I love drag performances. I think transvestites are utterly fascinating in their blending of masculine and feminine traits. Uh, it's, it's just this strange wavering between boundaries. But in, in a context of children, this is all about trying to destroy childhood innocence. So I do not accept that that both sides are are excessive in their movement to the extremes. The right has to be hard hitting because the left is is destroying our culture. And I would add um, to pick up on your points about Sweden and Canada and the rest of non non American uh, West. I, I thought that Sweden actually had better immigration policies than the U.S. Now, I don't know what if they also were wir schaffen das with, with Angela Merkel with the Syrian crisis in 2015, but I thought they actually uh, have some more guts there in saying we want thing, people that are culturally consistent, and they were much better on COVID. But the thing that, the, that America still has a tread of of sanity on is is free speech. It is 
terrifying uh, to look at the ease with which Europe and Canada is completely willing to uh, use government power to shut down uh, the marketplace of ideas. And Germany obviously leads the way. It uh, has a history with Nazism, and so it, it has long banned ideas. And whether one wants to justify that or not, one can understand it. Uh, but every place else without that history is just as willing. And we have the First Amendment, which you guys don't have, which makes you realize that, yes, laws really matter. Um, I tend to be sort of a legal realist or even a critical legal scholar in, in believing that interpretation is endless and that there, that laws don't necessarily determine outcomes and there's a huge, huge range of possible readings. Nevertheless, it would appear that by virtue of having a First Amendment uh, and, and laws against the government interference with free speech, it does matter. I don't think it's going to last much longer because we are putting these left-wing law students in, uh, on the bench, both for diversity reasons and ideological reasons. So you have Biden nominating to the bench judges that he knew would not even get past the uh, American Bar Association because their qualifications were so low, but he was nominating them because of their sex and above all their race. So he said, I'm not going to submit my federal judicial nominees to the ABA for a rating any longer. Um, so we're putting incompetence on the bench, but we're also putting people that are the products of this left-wing legal education that believe that there's such a thing as hate speech that causes injury. This is what they talk about all the time as students in law schools. I wrote about the Stanford incident of the shutdown of, of the federal judge, Kyle Duncan. Um, I, I am not confident that we are not going to Europe, Europeanize ourselves when it comes to censorship. It's already happening, obviously, in the private sector, and nobody quite knows what to do about it. I sure don't. I mean, the, the technical challenges are so enormous to try and create alternative platforms. Um, so that, that's very worrisome. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that's, um, this is an, another thing that's just downstream from the, from the technological substrate that we all or all are on. And, um, you know, it does give governments pretty much unlimited powers to, to, to crack down on it in very subtle ways as well. But I just want to get back to, to the symmetry argument. I think, um, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I don't think it needs to be symmetrical to lead to escalation because, I mean, the culture is moving left rapidly. I mean, it's been moving left for, you know, decades, maybe half a century, maybe more. Um, and the, um, the the fact that, you know, even even sitting still in the perspective of the mainstream is to have uh, an unreasonably uh, right-wing uh, position so I think, yeah, I think the the left is perfectly capable to to escalate its positions against this um, persistent and and uh, stubborn insistence uh, of the right to ideas like you know heterosexual marriage to 
um, you know, just the, the the classics of you know having having a bunch of children and uh, maybe the, the the wife stays at home and it just like absolutely yeah. basic things. They were just uh, you know common sense uh, yeah. up until five minutes ago, um, and also uh, to to escalate against kind of the specter of all of these things because I was you know I was talking about media before. I mean, if you look at a lot of the patterns in media as well. I mean, this this figure of the of the overbearing oppressive father. I mean, everyone on the left seems to have some form of that archetype in their sights when they're rebelling and they're they're building up their vision of how much more rebellion. And then the media obviously serves them all sorts of ways in which to rebel. You know, now we support trans people. We they need their surgeries. They need their hormones. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely something uh, about that that image that kind of animates uh, the left and even. They don't even have to look at real conservatives to 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 be able to to escalate. It's incredible. I mean, it is a war on males. White males, they're doomed. I mean, they're at the bottom of the heap. They get uh, considered for jobs only after the diversity search has completely petered out unsuccessfully. Uh, and and the hatred of male virtues again to get back to the the Nietzschean point of the male virtues of courage and valor and. And yes, military conquest, those are all now disparaged in an increasingly feminized world. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, males are denied any kind of bonding experience. The fact that the United States allows females into combat units, that's it. I mean, if, if we're doing that, it is over. That is so profoundly deliberately ignorant about the realities of sex differences and military necessity that we are willing to put our combat readiness at risk merely to qualify females for four-star generalship. Cause that's, that's what this is all about is that to become top dog in the Pentagon military structure, you need combat experience. And so that's why we've put females into combat units they are not physically capable. They have been, they do not have the body strength. And, and as a result, the military has been lowering its, its standards to get them in. And even worse, they will introduce arrows into combat units that depend on combat cohesion and being able to trust each other and have a sense of one single body. You put a female in with a bunch of young males that whose hormones are raging, there is going to be enormous conflict and sexual jealousies. We all know about the pregnancies on submarines. That is, once that starts happening, that is ridiculous. You cannot have people in, in these environments that are supposed to be about one thing, which is winning wars. They are not about gender equity. War is not about gender equity. But the fact that the, the U.S. military is willing to put up with this bullshit shows how completely we have lost any contact with basic biological, physical, national realities. It is utterly stunning. And yes, where did this begin? Did it begin with the Enlightenment uh, attack on authority uh, with we will no longer have the divine right of kings. You know, we take that for granted now. Conservatives like to think they're conservative. No, they are as much on board 
what were at the time completely revolutionary, unthinkable upsets of traditions as now trans people were. You know, to think about having democracy, suffrage, starting out with the property owners, but it spread, getting rid of, of absolute rulers. These were radical changes that defined the West and how you stop on that path and say, well, yeah, that was maybe okay to have, have constitutional government, to, to have a check on the king's power, to have balance of powers, to have vote, to have citizens, democracy. Oh, that's so, so great, so great. But how do you stop that from now tearing down any kind of legitimate authority? It's a very perplexing thing. Yes, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a great train. I like the amenities, but there are no brakes on it, unfortunately. And right. yeah, we're, we're heading uh, off, the, off, the, off the cliff edge. Um, yes, I think we're, we're coming up on time. I completely agree with you. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's also a, a very big question. I mean, did, was, did it start with the Reformation? Did it start with the printing press? Also one of the main, uh, main theories, um, the Enlightenment, big candidate. But yeah, I think... We're we're at a at a crossroads in history, and if um you know the the, the Western vigor doesn't pick up in one way or another, um in in the, the types of characters that built uh, the civilization that I look up to and and I admire, um yeah I don't I don't really see uh, anyone anyone fixing the trajectory, um but yeah I want to ask you the the question of the show this is the last question everyone gets this question, uh, and it is about a um subversive thinker in the spirit of the show uh, that you think is influential, uh, should be more influential, maybe is underrated and uh, that people should read, um, inquire about. This could be any sort of thinker. I mean, we've had uh, film directors, artists, musicians, mostly writers, I have to say, but, uh, but all sorts of characters recommended. Well, after a discussion about the need for authority, I don't know why we're we're supporting subversive thinkers, oh, yes. except obviously we've come so far circle that uh, to be for authority is itself subversive. But exactly, again, like this just gets back to our issue. You know, what what authority do we like and what don't we like? And it tends to be I like the authority that gives me power, and I don't like anything that interferes with my maximized autonomy. So anyway, um, let's see. Uh, well, so again. Uh, I would substitute maybe subversive for underappreciated. Um, for me, I think a, a writer that has given me a framework that helps me explain a lot about our world is Edward Banfield, a sociologist at Harvard, who wrote what was viewed as sort of a subversive book, uh, the collection of essays that's been put together called The Unheavenly City. And one of his chapters was something cheeky like rioting for fun and profit. He was writing this during the 1960s civil rights, so-called civil rights riots that were breaking out across society. And I, I take that civil rights part back. I don't believe that riots are ever justified by anything to do with rights. They are always, always contemptible and, and culpable. Uh, but of course they were being romanticized at the time. And he was, Banfield was having nothing of it and said, oh, come on, these people are just opportunistic. Opportunistic, You know, they're stealing televisions has nothing to do with voting rights. But he had a, a, a um, 
template that distinguished for him, I think he used the phrase still sort of upper class, middle class, and lower class that was uh, time horizon and one's capacity as a group, social group to be future oriented and defer gratification. And for him, the uh, trait of the aristocrats are they're very future oriented. They have a sense of their past, past generations, but building a world for future generations. And, and as a personal matter, uh, being able to defer gratification and have future orientation means that you're not going to go out partying tonight. You're going to actually stay home and study. And the middle class is sort of half halfway there. Yes, they they do defer gratification, but not as much. And the the for him, the lower class, the characteristic of lower class, underclass behavior is no self-control. It's no impulse control. This is crime. You know, you want something, you can't even think about, well, what if I get arrested? Right now, all you want to do is, is get that thing. And uh, the capacity to defer gratification for a more distant goal is something that, in his view, does set apart different class structures. And I think that's for me, has been an interesting way to look at, at social reality. Yes, that's, that's definitely a, a very important component. I mean, um, a time preference, I've, I've heard it referred to as well. Um, and this is not the, the first time I've uh, I've heard the name Edward Banfield. I think his uh, other book, the, the, the Moral Basis of a Backward Society, has also been recommended on the show. And I think it's, a, it's also an interesting case study in, um, in, in a low trust society. I mean, he, he follows a, kind of the, 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 the moral attitudes of people in a small uh, Italian village that was, I think, some, sometime in the 1950s and uh, describes something called uh, amoral uh, fam- familism, familialism right. um, as a, as a uh, to be honest, a very, even for someone coming from a, a lower trust society, that, that is a kind of an aberration in itself. And I feel like it's, it's a very um, interesting case study for anyone who wants to look at the, the whole spectrum between what it means to really have zero trust in your fellow man, to not be able to build any sort of uh, civil society structures, no volunteerism, no mutual aid, no nothing, um, not even you know the, the clannish you know mores of the of Eastern Europe. Even those don't apply there. So it's it's interesting to kind of look at the, the, at the whole spectrum. To um, I don't know, maybe uh, the the opposite example would be something like. Uh, what you find in an Albion seed by, by David Hackett Fisher, kind of the, the, the Puritan communities, which were kind of maybe, maybe overly integrated in that sense. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. So extremely good recommendation. Um, Unheavenly city. I will definitely put it in the show notes. Um, and I want to thank you again, Heather. This was, this was lovely and an honor. Um, and I want to thank you for all of the work you do and all the, the deep dives and talking to the people on the ground and just writing the most uh, detailed and valuable pieces about all of the places that people don't want to look. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a great conversation and I'm, I'm delighted to be on your program, Alex. Thank you. And I want to point people again to the book. The book comes out on the 18th of April, as far as I know. And uh, it is called When Race Trumps Merit, uh, and it'll be out everywhere. Fine books are sold very soon. Thank you. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.